Good morning. Good morning. So um, I think it's good as a little reminder to remind us that as a church, uh, what we do is teach the Bible. Um, we do that on Sundays. We do that on Wednesdays. Uh, we do that in our homes. Um, our whole lives of discipleships are based around uh, this book. So um, I'm excited to do that this morning for you men. I'm just going to go ahead and read our text first, and then we can get into it. It's going to be Isaiah 33, verses 13 through 16, and it should be on the the notes there as well. So it's going to be uh, Isaiah 33, verses 13 through 16. I'll go ahead and begin reading at verse 13. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So Isaiah was God's prophet to the nation of Israel during a time of political, moral, and spiritual decline. The people had rejected God, and it was evident in the corrupt leadership, in the oppression of the poor, and the religious hypocrisy. There was division in the nation. Uh, the nation was split up into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of of Judah, so there was a great division and polarization of the people of God. There was immorality at every level of society, and the prophet Isaiah was called to preach God's message of repentance and restoration to a nation that had rejected God. Uh, it was an unrighteous nation, an unrighteous society of unrighteous men. Which is what makes our passage so timely for us, as the Bible always is. Because we are a society of unrighteous men. I don't particularly believe we were ever a Christian nation, but we were at least at one time a country that legislated consistent with biblical principles of government and ethics, at least generally. Well, those days are no more. And I don't need to prove that to any of you. But I think more productive than kind of whining and complaining about how bad our, our society is, how bad our nation's become, which is not very productive. And rather than reminiscing about a supposed golden age or the good old days, which are never really as good or golden as we think they are, uh, I think more productive than those, I really want us to see from our text uh, the marks of a righteous man, the marks of a man who's right with God. Because true righteousness, true righteous living, is not something that is produced by public policy. It's not something that can be legislated. You can't make people righteous or make people live righteous lives um, simply by putting it into law. It's something that God has to bring about in the heart of an individual. And that produces righteous living. And it's when individuals are changed that society is changed. And so that's what we're about. We're really about the transformation of the heart, and that can only happen in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, verse 13. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. 
So who's addressed here? Who's addressed in this passage? Well, first, there's the, those who are far off. Those who are far off. And in the context of Isaiah's ministry, uh, these, uh, this refers to Gentiles. Gentiles were, the, were non-Israelites. They were uh, referred to the nations uh, outside of Israel, the surrounding nations, those who are outside of the bounds of God's national people. These are the people who did not receive the revelation of the true God. They didn't participate in the worship of the true God. And they did not witness the miracles of the true God, the mighty acts of judgment and deliverance that he performed for his people. So those are, those, uh, those are the people who are far off, and they need to acknowledge the might of God. And then there are those who are near, the Israelites, those within the nation of Israel, whether in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, these are those who received the law of God through Moses, participated in the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals and the temple worship. These are those who saw and heard all that God had done in liberating his people from slavery to Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. So why do the near, why do the near here need to hear this message? Because even though they were nationally God's people, their hearts were not right with him. Their hearts were not right with God. They were near merely in in ethnic and geographic terms. But they did not know, love, or obey the Lord God. A couple chapters earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord is speaking about his own people, his own national people. And he says, verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 13, This people draws near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. This is quoted in, I think, two Gospels, in Matthew and Mark. This is quoted. And so, those who are far off, they need to hear the message that Isaiah is giving. And those who are near, they probably need it even more. So, what's the problem? What's the problem that uh, we are presented with here? The message is universal. It applies to those who are far and near, But as we move into verse 14, the focus narrows down to those who are near. We can call them the religious hypocrites, the religious hypocrites of Israel. Again, the nation is in political, moral, and spiritual freefall. I mean, the the society is just nosediving, plummeting. And throughout this period, God had sent prophets time and time again to warn them, to warn them, to call out their sin, to warn them of the coming judgment, and to plead with them to plead with them earnestly to repent and to turn back from God. God told them ahead of time that he was going to use, and he was going to unleash the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge Israel and to lead them off into exile, which he did. The Assyrians in 722 B.C. and the Babylonians in 586 B.C., they came and carried them off into exile. And the whole time they're being warned, the people are just blowing them off. Um, They're not believing what they're saying. They're persecuting the prophets. And it's just like, uh, I believe it's Peter in the New Testament. He even says, these people, you know, they say, "Where where is the promise coming? Well, this was happening in the Old Testament, too. Well, now, the Assyrians are visible on the horizon, and they realize that this is not mere political and national conflict. This is the judgment of God on them for their rejection of him and that they are reaping what they have sown in centuries of despising God 
and living immoral lives before him, and even invoking his name while doing so. And so now they're afraid. They know that this is the judgment of God, and they're afraid. It says that trembling has seized the godless. Verse 14, again, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. And so their concern and their fear is expressed two different ways. Um, and it's really, it's really the same question that's just asked in two different forms. The end of verse 14. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And it's in these questions that there's a recognition that they are an exceptionally, an exceptionally sinful people before a three times holy God. And so the problem revealed by these questions is the same problem. It's the ultimate problem of human life, of the human race that concerns both this life and the life to come. And that question is this. How can sinners, how can sinners coexist with a holy God? How can sinners coexist with a holy God? If you look at Psalm 130, verse 3, there's another angle on this. Uh, it's, the same, it's kind of a similar question, but it's just another angle on the problem. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The question is essentially, God, if you were to take a head count of sinless people, would you find any? I mean, the answer is so obvious. We're, we're, we're chuckling about it. The answer is so obvious. Uh, in fact, in the psalm, it doesn't even answer the question. It's a rhetorical question. There are no sinless people. There are no people that don't have a sin nature, that aren't rebels against God by birth at least. Um, everyone on planet Earth who has ever been born, save for the Lord Jesus Christ, is a sinner. In these questions, God's holiness is described as a consuming fire, the consuming fire, and everlasting burnings. And this is really to say, these are just descriptions of God's holiness. This is to say that man cannot survive direct exposure to the holiness of God. He would be destroyed instantly. He would be like a moth on the surface of the sun. In Exodus 33, 20, Moses wants to see God. Lord, show me your glory. And God says to him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And it's not that we can't see God because we have deficiencies in our eyes. It's because we have deficiencies in our hearts. And our hearts need to be made right with him. And eventually, when we are totally glorified, totally perfected in heaven, then we will see Christ face to face. So this is the problem. This is the universal problem. This is the ultimate problem of human existence. So who can coexist with a holy God? So what is the answer? What's the answer? Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. What's the answer given by our text? Only a righteous man, only a righteous man can coexist with a holy God. 
And I think that that idea of righteousness, especially as we think of it applied to, uh, to us in our lives, makes us a little uncomfortable, if we're, a little, if we're honest. And I think it's very important, and this is maybe the, maybe the most important thing I'll say today is, verse 15 tells us what a righteous man is like. It is not telling us how to become righteous. Okay? Verse 15 tells us what a righteous man is like. It does not tell us how to become righteous. So that distinction is very, very important. It's not telling us, do these things to become right with God. It's telling us, the life of a man who's right with God, this is what his life looks like. It's simply describing his life, what characterizes his life. Because the message of the Bible in its entirety is that no one can be right with God by following all the rules or by trying to be a good person. No one. A person is justified in the sight of God on the basis of his faith or her faith alone. Faith alone. Galatians 2.16 reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, what does it say? Some? No one. No one will be justified. The Bible couldn't be more clear. Could not be more clear that justification and righteousness before God is, by, is on the basis of faith. By believing Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So once you're counted to be righteous before God, justified by God, made right with him, then and only then can we begin walking that out in our lives. Only then. So, what are the marks of a man who's right with God? What are the, man, what are the marks of this kind of a man? Look at the first part of verse 15. He who walks... Righteously. It starts very general, and then it gets more specific. He who walks righteously. He does the right thing. He does the right thing in his life. Not just when it's easy, because most of the time when we have those opportunities to do what is right, it's often very difficult. It's, uh, it's not really presented to us with a, with a uh, silver platter with a little pillow underneath it. It's usually during the difficult times that we have to make difficult decisions to do what's right. Decisions that are unpopular. Decisions that are uncomfortable. He doesn't just do them when they're easy. He doesn't just do them to be seen by others. Um, this man understands that reputation in this life is important. The Bible does talk about a man's reputation. But he's not doing it for the approval or, the, or, or to please men. He lives his life before an audience of one. He lives his life before God. He knows that God sees him not just in public but in private also. And not just the privacy of his own home or his own bedroom, but even in his heart, he knows that God sees, that God knows. And I think that a lot of us men in the, in the church in general have forgotten that in Christ we can live a righteous life. We can live a life that's pleasing to God. We can live lives that are above reproach. And he calls us to do that. Um, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about becoming sinless. It's, it's very, not just obvious by our own lives, if we're honest with ourselves, but even in Scripture, 1 John says that if any man says he has no sin, he makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. So I'm not talking about perfection. 
But I'm talking about living a life that's pleasing to God in Christ, walking closely with Christ, obeying him out of joyful gratitude and obedience. And I think oftentimes we get hung up on our doctrine of universal human sinfulness, though it's true, though it definitely is true and biblical. Uh, But I think sometimes as men, uh, we might tend to misuse that as an excuse for apathy and laziness. Oh, well, I'll never be, you know, I'll never live up to the standard anyways, so um, I'm just going to. I'm just going to cruise my Christian life, and who am I to think that I can, you know, I'm not, I'm not righteous, and, and we make ourselves feel humble by, by having that kind of attitude. Um, there is a universal human sinfulness, and we do have remaining sin. But apathy and laziness and stagnation in our Christian lives? No. In Christ, we are meant to run with all our might to live upright and above reproach lives before God in public and in private. I think that the verses in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, even though they are the qualifications for elders, I think that really we need to make those the standard again for our lives. And that though we, when we read through those, we, we don't just think, okay, well, that's for the pastor. That's for people who want to go into ministry. No, that's for, that, that should be the goal of our lives as men. We're meant to run with all our might to live upright, above reproach lives before God in public and in private. And thank the Lord that by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ, we can. We can do that. So two, the second mark of a man who's right with God. Speaks uprightly. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Now, the Bible in many places teaches us that what comes out of a man's mouth is simply the expression of what's in his heart. Uh, the mouth is essentially the release valve of the heart. Matthew twelve thirty four in the middle of the verse to verse 36, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil, evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. It doesn't say every sinful word. It says every careless word. This is not simply a matter of not saying bad words, whatever your language is. It's about your motive. It's about your intent. It's about the character of the things that you say and the manner that you say them. Um, I think that oftentimes when we think of our speech, we, we think about... You know, just simply not saying bad words, uh, not gossiping, um, not, not cursing someone. We, we, need to go, we need to go further than that. We need to go beyond that. We need to think about, you know, even the words that I don't think about are going to be are recorded and we're going to have to give an account for them. So ask yourself, what is the character, the overall character and the manner of the way that I talk, the way that I speak? And what does it say about your inner life? So he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Third, what he hates. The man who is right with God is marked out by the things that he hates. What does it say here? Who despises the gain of oppressions. Who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. We'll just, we'll take the, uh, despises the gain of oppressions. 
in Isaiah's day, it was common, um, it was really commonplace for people to oppress the socially vulnerable, the poor, the widows, the orphans. That's why they're mentioned specifically so much, because it was just commonplace to oppress them. There was no social conscience about that. It was, um, it was really an, ex- an expression of the unrighteousness of their hearts that they did that. And they would get rich off it. They would make profit, even make their own livings off of doing that. I mean, this is what the, essentially the tax collectors were in the New Testament. They were getting rich off of oppressing their own people. And so the man who's right with God, he doesn't just not oppress people, but he hates oppression. And he doesn't just hate oppression, he hates the gain of oppression. Sin always, we have to remind ourselves, sin always has some type of reward that's offered. There's always some type of benefit that it it reaches out to you. I remember uh, uh, Genesis 3, Satan says, you won't surely die. If you eat the fruit, you won't surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's always, a, there's always a, an offer. There's always a reward. There's always a gain. There's always a benefit that comes attached to sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't be tempted to do them. <laughs> Why else would we do something that deserves eternal destruction unless there is some, some, something shiny on it with a big red bow? For us men, it's usually in three categories. Girls, gold, or glory. <laughs> Females, fortune, or fame. <laughs> but all these things are going to pass away. All the, all the sexual immorality, uh, all, the, all the money that can get stolen or that can get lost in bank collapses, uh, vanity of pleasing others or being seen by people, oh, look, how great I, look how great I am. All these things are going to pass away. We do realize that we're here but for a couple moments. That we're just passing through this world. We're just on a pilgrimage. This is, we're just sojourners here. In a couple moments, we're all going to be dead. And with the Lord, I pray. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. This is the true gain. And so the man who walks with God, who's right with him, he despises the gain of oppressions. Fourthly, the man who's right with God is marked by the way that he handles temptation, the way that he deals with temptation. Note the threefold strategy here. Who shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. The righteous man sets up protective measures for his hands, for his ears, and for his eyes. It's not enough, first, it's not enough for him to just not stretch out his hand to reach out for a bribe, who's just reaching out for for greedy gain or gain by oppressions. That's not enough for him because he could have his hands down and maybe someone just slipped uh, slipped a bribe in there and, and just sort of implied to him. Didn't say, oh, I never agreed to that explicitly, but so they just sort of snuck it in, and he's having none of it. He shakes his hands. He's like, is there a bribe? As if he's made a Velcro or something, and someone just stuck a bribe in there. He wants to make sure that this thing gets off. He goes the extra mile to ensure that there is no bribe, that he can't be tempted in that kind of way. His ears and his eyes... He's unwilling to let himself even see or hear the wicked things that people around him are doing just so casually, so casually, 
even boasting about. He's unwilling to see or hear those things. Because he knows that even if he doesn't contribute to those things by his actions, there's a great temptation to participate in them in his heart. There's a great temptation to participate in those things in his heart. If we're in a, if we're in a situation where there are people around us that are doing things that we know dishonors and, and doesn't glorify God, and we just sit there, we might be very content to just think, well, I'm not doing it. But you're looking at it, but perhaps you could be looking at it with envy in your heart. And so this man knows himself, and he knows, you know what, I'm, just not, I'm not even going to allow myself to be in a position where I could be tempted by that kind of thing. This man doesn't wait until he's elbow deep in temptation and then cry out, Oh, Lord, deliver me. Lord, deliver me from this temptation. I mean, would you go up to a gorilla enclosement, open the door, walk in, close the door behind you, and then start bothering it or them, and then yell out, Oh, someone help me. No, no, we would just don't go in. Just don't, go in the, just don't go in the enclosement. And so that's the kind of idea that this man has in mind. He plans beforehand to avoid, first, the appearance of evil, with the shaking of his hands, lest he hold a bribe, so the appearance of evil even, and then second, the opportunities of temptation. The opportunities of temptation. There are so many examples from Scripture that we could even look at. I'm just going to name a few of them that illustrate this. Excuse me, in... Proverbs 5 and 5 through 7, Solomon is pleading, urging his son to not even walk that. You, you know where she lives. You know where the sexually immoral woman lives. Don't even walk down her street. Because you may walk down her street, but in your heart, that desire is going to be kindled. Don't even go down it. Take the long way home. Take the scenic route. Job 31.1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look on a virgin? He's made an agreement with his body parts that he's not going to participate in these things. And not just participate, he's not going to allow himself, he's not going to allow sin and temptation even an inch. He's not even going to leave the door ajar for sin to come and swing the whole thing wide open. I think the best uh, illustration of this even is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And Jesus is explaining the nature and the, really the extent of sin and the extent to which we have to deal with it. And he says, if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Because it's better to enter the kingdom half blind than to go into hell with all your body parts. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and toss it. Get rid of it. Never see it again. It's better for you to enter the kingdom maimed than to enter hell with both hands. And the whole point of that is, is not to create the uh, first, first church of amputees. <laughs> it's, it, this isn't, it's not sanctification by amputation. Okay? It, it's... The, the whole point of that isn't to actually cut off your limbs. Otherwise, you know. And I think, that, I think really we have to remember, too, is that our right hand doesn't cause us to sin. Our right eye doesn't cause us to sin. So that's not the point. The point is the heart. The heart. 
And so whatever, is, whatever you are allowing in your heart, whatever you're giving a foothold in your heart to, you need to, the whole point of Jesus saying that, our Lord saying that, is you need to do whatever it takes to avoid sin. And you need to even take radical measures, even violent measures against sin, in order to avoid it and to get it out of your life. The man who walks with God is willing to do whatever it takes, to do whatever it takes to live a righteous life before God. And this isn't just to follow rules. We need to remind ourselves of this. This isn't just to follow rules. This isn't just to look good in front of other people. This man is offended by the things that offend God. He loves the things that God loves. Righteousness, purity, peace, all those things. He loves those things. Iniquity, transgression, immorality. He hates those things. He's offended by the things that offend God. He's not satisfied with a, with a bare minimum sanctification. He's not searching for, for the line between, between righteousness and unrighteousness and then trying to get as close to the line as possible without crossing over. He's not looking for a bare minimum like, okay, what are the, what's the passing grade? And I'll just maintain that. Let me, let me, just, let me just maintain a, a, a 70, uh, 70%, 79%, whatever. He's not looking for that. He's not living his life checking off a list of rules that he has to follow while he looks out the window and sees all his friends playing outside. No. No, that's not it at all. He's living a life of joyful obedience in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And so ask yourself, with my life, do, do I want to bring God a little bit of glory or much? And it's right for us to ask ourselves this. This isn't exalting ourselves saying, I'm going to do so, you know, I'm going to do so great and I'm going to do all this. This is for the glory of Christ. The man who's right with God, who's justified by faith alone, and on the basis of that faith, is determined, he's determined to live a life of joyful obedience to Christ. That's the man who can dwell with the consuming fire. That's the man who can dwell with everlasting burnings. Verse 16. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. A handful of words come to mind with this last verse. Safety, security, assurance, provision, protection, preservation. We don't believe in a health and wealth gospel. I hardly have to convince any of you of that. God is not a cosmic gumball machine where we put a quarter in and get a gumball out. Say, you know, follow a few, a few rules, say a few prayers, and then get what we want out of God. That's no God at all. That's no gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the scriptures do tell us that God blesses obedience. It's very clear that God does bless obedience. There's no question about it. Our problem is that God's blessing in our life doesn't always look the way we want it to. That's the problem. 
And when we're fighting to live a Christ-like life and things around us are falling apart, we tend to forget that. We tend to forget that walking closely with God in joyful obedience to Christ is the most secure and advantageous position that anyone on planet Earth can be in, regardless of what your circumstances look like. Look at the way that the, uh, the word will is used in this verse. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Do you sense the certainty of this? The absolute assurance of this? The certainty that God will protect you and provide for your needs and be there for you every step of your earthly pilgrimage, even into eternity. Do you sense that? Do you sense the certainty of that? Will you believe that when, tempt- when temptation comes, when the first steps of sin are at your doorstep? Will you believe that? And will you believe that obedience is the most secure that you can be, the most advantageous, the greatest gain, godliness with contentment? That's when you need to believe it. I want to read Romans 8 real quick. Romans 8. A couple verses from that great chapter in Romans. I'm going to read verses, starting at verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know, we know, that for those who love God, some things... All things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And firstborn, by the way, is not in chronology, it's in rank. Firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are victims, more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I just want to say, to end our time, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment 
of everything that we've looked at in this passage. Jesus Christ, is the, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the ultimate fulfillment of this whole passage we've been looking at. Whether you're far or near, whether you grew up in, a, in an atheist home, whether you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever, whether you're a member of a cult, doesn't really matter. You need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you grew up in church, grew up in a religious family, grew up in a pastor's home or whatever it is, whether you consider yourself uh, near as far as the application of this text goes, near, you know, you're in a religious community, you need Jesus. You need a Savior. No one's beyond the need of Christ. It also doesn't matter if you're far or near, whether you're not religious, religious, Christian or non-Christian background. You can have a savior. If you're an atheist, you can come to Jesus. If you're a Muslim, you can come to Jesus. If you're a Buddhist, if you're agnostic, you can come to Christ. You both need Christ and can have Christ. You can believe in him. And there are God's people. There are God's elect in all these groups. And they need Christ. Whether you're far or near, you need a Savior, and you can have a Savior. And there's only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate problem of our text, how can sinful man coexist with a holy God? The ultimate answer, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Holy God also became sinless man, so sinful man could be reconciled to holy God. I'll say it again. Holy God became also sinless man, so sinful man could be reconciled to a holy God. Christ Jesus not only provides an example of righteous living, but enablement for righteous living by his Holy Spirit. Not just an example of righteous living, but empowerment for righteous living. And in Christ, you can have complete assurance, complete assurance, that in this life, which by the way, again, you're just passing through, you're just passing through this life. That in this life, you are invincible until the Lord calls you home. Nothing bad can happen to you. Not in God's eyes. It may seem bad to us, but in God's eyes, all things are good that, ha- that happen to us are for our good. And you can have absolute security, protection, and provision for this age and for the age to come. There's a great line in this song, um, and it says, He as though I, accursed and left alone. I as though he, embraced and welcomed home. And that's what we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Timely as it always is, even in places that may seem Obscure, Lord, all your word, all your revelation is profitable for us, for righteous living, for, uh, for an example. Lord, as men, we so need the power of your Holy Spirit to live righteous lives. And even in our speech to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it with the way we live and also the things we say, it must be both. It must be both. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this food and this morning. 
Help us to live righteous lives for the glory of Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen.